Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 43, which were read for us this morning. If you're using the Bibles in the seats, you should find those verses in most of those Bibles on page 684 or thereabouts. I want to start by saying about this text that for much of my Christian life, I found it to be one of the hardest in the Bible. If someone sues you and wants to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if someone wants to borrow from you, don't turn away from them. I remember reading this in college and thinking, I know I'm supposed to follow Jesus and obey his teaching, but I can't do this. It's too hard. Everything in me does not want to do it. If someone tries to take my shirt, I want to protect myself and make sure I keep it. If someone wants to borrow or have what's mine, I want to decide and evaluate whether I want to give it to them. And so as much as possible, I think I tried to forget that these verses were in the Bible. It's not hard. There are so many other places to read. Mark's Gospel, John's Gospel, most of Paul's writings. The book of Revelation is very interesting. I could spend a long time pondering the end times. But here in this passage, Jesus is just so radical and so demanding. He can't really mean what he's saying here, can he? Surely someday I thought I'd come across a teacher or a commentator who could explain to me that Jesus isn't really saying what he seems to be saying. Has anyone else felt this way? We're not alone. After all, most of us are trying to get ahead in the world. To hold on to what we have and what we can gain. To try to protect ourselves against calamity and catastrophe and the kind of people who would prey on us or hurt us or ruin our plans and mess up our lives and take what's ours. So to do what Jesus says here seems so unrealistic and impractical and unattractive. To quote the famous missionary in India, E. Stanley Jones, I've quoted him before, it feels, this passage feels like it's trying to give human nature a bent it will not take. Over the years, though, my heart has been slowly changing toward these verses. Jesus has been changing my heart, I believe. And I've come little by little to embrace what Jesus says here. Not as a necessary evil like taking your medicine that you don't want to take, but you do it because you have to and someone said it's good for you. But rather as actually something good and beautiful. If you remember when we first began looking at the Sermon on the Mount, I pointed out how influential this whole sermon that Jesus gives has been on Western culture and history. In fact, today's short passage alone has generated two phrases which are widely known in the English language. Turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. We also saw how Jesus' sermon influenced people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi and Desmond Tutu in the nonviolent revolutions that they led, both of which, as well as the work of Desmond Tutu, achieved massive positive societal change. And today's passage is one of the portions of Scripture that, that most influenced these leaders. 
And so that suggests that maybe there is something to these verses. Remember also that the Sermon on the Mount, or remember what it is and um, what the Beatitudes are which introduce it. It's Jesus' vision for a society, for a kingdom, for a way of life where everyone flourishes. Where there's peace and justice and love and goodness. As I put it in an earlier sermon, it's not so much that Jesus is trying to turn the world upside down here as that he's trying to turn it right side up. Remember how Jesus began the sermon. Blessed are those, he said eight times. And we saw that a better translation might be fortunate are those or flourishing are those or the ones who've got it made are those. Who ultimately gets to live the good life? Those we saw who are meek, who are merciful, who are peacemakers. And in today's passage, Jesus spells out in graphic terms what it looks like to be these kinds of people. And how such people react in real life situations. So let's take a closer look. As before, Jesus begins by quoting a phrase from the Old Testament. In this case, it's eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This phrase actually occurs three times in the Old Testament and each time in a slightly different context. Let's quickly go through them. First, it occurs in Exodus 21 where it has to do with what happens if you are in a fight and you strike a pregnant woman and she goes into labor. If there's serious injury, presumably to the woman or the child, the perpetrator is supposed to be punished eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, bruise for bruise, in accordance with the injury that they inflicted. Second, this phrase also occurs in Leviticus 24, where if you injure a neighbor, you're in a fight, you are to be injured in return in the same way, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Third, in Deuteronomy 19, if a witness testifies in court and they testify falsely against an innocent person, And the witness is found out. That witness is to be punished with the punishment that would have gone to the one that they falsely accused. Again, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, lash for lash. Interestingly, this phrase is used not only in the Old Testament, but it's used elsewhere in the ancient world in Old Testament times. It basically represents the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. The punishment shouldn't be too lenient, and the punishment shouldn't be too harsh. Now, one of the things this principle was intended to do was to prevent the escalation of violence. Your kid throws a baseball and it puts a dent in my new car. I'm going to take a sledgehammer and put six dents in your new car. (laughs) Your clan kills someone from my clan, so in retaliation, we kill three people from your clan. No, this law said no escalation of violence. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it stops there. Payback must be equal, it must be appropriate, and by the way, it must be decided by the court, not by vigilante justice. But as you can imagine, though, it's the other side of this law that often gets more attention. And that is that the punishment should not be less than the crime deserved. And so eye for eye and tooth for tooth was often used to justify revenge. He punches me in the face, I'm going to punch him back. 
he, uh, they assassinate one of our leaders, we're going to assassinate theirs. And that attitude seems to be the one that Jesus is addressing here. And what Jesus says in response is absolutely radical. Let's walk through it. And then after we do, we'll step back and we'll try to let it soak in and we'll consider what its ramifications are for our lives. So to begin, Jesus says, You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So who's Jesus talking about here? Evil people. And how do you, how do you respond when, when they do something evil against you? That's what Jesus is now going to unpack through three examples. First, example of an evil person and how you should respond. Someone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, we hear that and we think violence. We think of a bully or of a fight. But in that culture, as, as Doug mentioned last week, to slap someone on the right cheek was a huge insult. It's, it's a back-of-the-hand slap. If, if, if you think about it and the, the spatial aspect of it, if I'm right-handed and I slap your right cheek, I'm using the back of my right hand to do it. And this action in that culture was a huge insult. In shame cultures like that of Jesus, it was a huge attack on someone's honor. So much so that would you believe if someone backhand slapped you, you had the right to take them to court and sue them for attacking your honor. My guess is that the punishment might be that the the perpetrator would be publicly slapped in the same way as a way of shaming them back. I don't know for sure. I couldn't find that part of it as I studied this. So the first evil person that Jesus mentions here is is the one who attacks your good name. They drag it through the mud. They publicly insult you. And it may be hard for us to believe, but in that culture, a shame culture like that, this was a huge blow. This was an evil act. But how does Jesus say his followers should respond? Don't resist such a person, Jesus says. Let them slap your other cheek as well. In other words, stand there and take it. Don't sue them. Don't shame them back. Don't retaliate by seeking to destroy their honor. Let it go. Second example Jesus gives. If someone sues you to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. People wore two items of clothing in that culture at that time. An inner shirt or tunic and an outer cloak or coat. Now let's think about this. When was the last time someone went to court to literally take someone's shirt? It's not likely today, right? Unless the shirt belonged to a rock star uh, or a movie star. But we've got bigger fish to fry. Who'd bother to sue someone for their shirt? If if we sue someone, we want their house. We want their estate. We want to figure with four, five, six, seven zeros after it. So what's Jesus getting at here? If someone sues your shirt or sues you to take your shirt, well, what we have to remember is how poor most people were in the first century. So poor that people often only had one set of clothes. And those clothes might be one of the most valuable possessions that they owned. And as a result, there's a law in the Old Testament about lending money that if you lend a poor person money and all they have to give you as collateral, as security, is their cloak, that you have to give their cloak back by that evening. You can't keep it because it's all they have as a blanket to keep warm at night, to sleep in. 
In other words, you weren't allowed to sue someone and take their cloak. It was against the law of the Old Testament. So likely, I think this is the scenario that Jesus has in mind. I'm a poor person. I borrow some money from you, maybe to buy some seeds for food so I can grow some food. And I have a bad harvest and I can't pay you back when it's time to pay my bill. And I had put up my shirt, my inner garment, as collateral. And you sue me to get my shirt because I didn't pay you back. You at this point, according to the Bible, are an evil person, according to Jesus here. You are showing no compassion. All you want is your money back, even if it ruins me. How should I respond to you as you're suing me if I'm a follower of Jesus? I should offer you my cloak as well, Jesus says. My outer garment, the one I have a right by law to hold on to. Third example Jesus gives. Someone forces you to go a mile with them. This was also a familiar scenario in Jesus' day. Remember, the Jews at this time are under Roman occupation. And there was a law that at that time that a Roman soldier could come up to you and say, you, right now, carry my stuff for me. And the law said they could ask you to carry it for up to one mile. Now again, think about it. People worked long days back then, often very physical jobs, and they had to work every moment they could just to survive. They didn't get paid lunch breaks or vacations. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. And so a soldier pulls me away from my work and makes me carry his stuff. And let's assume it's heavy. He's probably got weapons. He's got provisions, big heavy backpack. And I've got to carry all of his stuff a mile, maybe uphills and downhills on ruddy roads or paths. And then after I'm done, I have to walk back a mile by myself. That's a bad day. (laughs) I've maybe lost an hour of work. I'm worn out. I already hate the Romans. In this case, the evil person is is our hated oppressors. And, And what does Jesus say to his followers? He says, hey, while you're at it, carry your oppressor stuff two miles. Then Jesus adds one last thought. Up to this point, he's been talking about evil people, not to resist them or to take them to court or to even, and rather even to be helpful to our oppressors. And now he adds how we should treat the needy. Those who who don't have enough and are forced to beg and to borrow to get it. Now I'm assuming this because in an honor culture like that, you aren't going to ask to borrow from someone if you don't really need it because that would be shameful and degrading. So I think it's safe to assume that the person here who's asking uh, is, is in serious need. And Jesus says, give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now let's step back. What do we think about Jesus here? Is he being realistic? Does your heart inside well up and say, oh yes, that makes so much sense. It's, it's how I want to treat people. Well, let's think what it might look like to, to uh, apply Jesus' teaching today. Who are, who are the evil people today? Who's oppressing us? Who's taking away our freedom? Who's maybe financially trying to take advantage of us? Who's insulting us? 
or if, if honor isn't so important to us as it was back then, uh, what, what is? Maybe our livelihood, our freedom, our security. Who's threatening that? Who's the evil person for you? I can think of an application for myself, um, not necessarily on the scale of what Jesus is talking about here, but significant nonetheless for me. Some of you know that I'm a landlord, and we've been largely blessed with good tenants. But not always. We, we've had tenants who leave the house a mess when they move out, um, costing us time and money for cleaning and repairs. We've had tenants get behind on the rent and come up with all kinds of excuses and, and lies about why we didn't get the rent. And, and do you know how I feel when I feel like I'm being taken advantage of by them? There's that feeling we have, right? <laughs> that, that starts to well up in us. The, the anger, the frustration, the justification, the, the desire for justice. You know that feeling? When someone takes advantage of you or insults you or takes something that belongs to you, it's not right, it's not fair, and you want it made right or you, maybe you want to get even. That feeling. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Jesus is poking at here. He's saying that feeling, that part of your heart that generates that feeling, that part of you, let's talk about that. I kind of picture it like like a doctor trying to locate the spot that needs to be treated. Have have you ever had a sore spot on your back and and maybe a a friend or a spouse is massaging it for you and they're trying to find the spot and you're like, oh, you know, it's, it's sort of over here and they go poking around and they're like, here, and you're like, no, up a little. There, no, no, a little to the right. Here, no, no, you passed it back a little. Here, oh, yeah, yeah, there, right there, that's it. Oh, yeah, I feel that knot. I think that's what Jesus is doing here with our heart. He's poking that part of us. He's saying, there, that spot in you, in your heart, I want to talk to you about that. That part of you which rises up with anger and defensiveness, with with uh, revengefulness, maybe. You know, some Christians, I've heard them call that part the snake, that self-protective, self-justifying, angry part. When it gets poked or riled up, it can rear back and hiss and snarl, right? Guess what, Jesus says, believe it or not, that spot is not healthy, spiritually speaking. It's not healthy. And I want to change and heal that part of you. I want you to pay attention to it and I want to deal with it. Because if you are going to continue to follow me, if you're going to follow my way, if you're going to be salt and light, a part of my kingdom movement in the world, which is coming to bring good news and bring badly needed change in this broken and often dark world, If you're going to live the life I painted a picture of in the Beatitudes, a flourishing life, a blessed life, a good life, then that part of your heart is going to have to change. That part of you is not meek. It is not gentle. It's going to keep you from truly being a peacemaker. And remember I said you were going to get persecuted if you follow me? That heart, part of your heart's going to have to deal with that. After all, what am I? Your, your leader, 
I'm a lamb going to the slaughter. The victory I'm going to win is going to happen through laying down my life, through weakness, through death. And if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross too. Because it's in dying that you will find the life that I offer. I promise, Jesus says. It's in letting go and giving up that you will find and receive. It's through the cross that life and resurrection come and that my kingdom comes. The kingdom I've come to bring, a kingdom of peace and love, it's not going to come through anger and violence. It's going to come if we get new hearts which start acting in love now, even to our enemies. And what may happen as a result? Well, we may suffer for it. We may even die. But death only leads to resurrection. Laying down life only leads to greater life. Jesus promises. Remember, a seed has to fall into the ground and die in order to grow and produce much fruit. And so I think Jesus is saying, let's get started in your ordinary life. Let's talk about how you deal with it when someone insults you, takes a slap at your honor, or oppresses you, demanding something that that you value and depend on, like the shirt on your back. Or or when they boss you around and they, they make you serve them, even though you resent everything they stand for. How do you respond? What goes on inside of you at those times? We've got to deal with that part of your heart, Jesus says, if you want to become like me. If you want to be salt and light and a countercultural influence in the world. If you want to walk in the way of Jesus' kingdom. Let me give you another personal example. Um, And let me start by saying that my wife, Anne, is wonderful. This is a marriage illustration. (laughs) She's patient with me, she's understanding, she's supportive. But every once in a while, she gets frustrated with me, maybe even a little cranky. And maybe she says something that feels to me to be a bit critical or harsh. And I get my back up. She's not being fair. So what that I forgot something she asked me to do? Doesn't she understand all I've got going on? It's not like she didn't forget just the other day something I asked her to do. Who's she to pick on me and to come on so strong about this? Any of you relate to this? You, you, you know this feeling? What's going on in our hearts at that moment? <laughs> well, well, for me, it's part of that, it's the part of my heart which wants to defend myself, which wants to strike back even. It, it's that snake part, the angry, snarling part that feels justified. And that's the part of me Jesus is poking at here. He's saying, hey, about that part of you, is that all really good and just? Is that, is that a pure sense of justice you feel there? Or is there more going on? Is there a bit of selfishness? Is there a bit of pride? I want to change that part of your heart so you can be more like me. So you can act more like I act. Why not turn the other cheek? Why not go the extra mile? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6-7, probably reflecting on this teaching here by Jesus. You see, here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that being willing to return good for evil 
and love for hatred and gentleness for violent, violence is God's secret power to change the world. Jesus already won the decisive victory exercising this kind of power on the cross. Out of this kind of powerful self-sacrifice comes resurrection, power, and life. And to the extent that we live this way too, we will experience and walk in this power. I can't promise you when that will happen, on what timetable or what it will look like, but Jesus promises that ultimately it's true. That's why the meek will literally inherit the earth. See, Jesus is is not asking us to be a doormat in today's passage. And as Doug mentioned last week, in cases of abuse and serious victimization, Jesus has other things to say which may be more relevant than what Jesus has here. Um, Jesus isn't just asking us to let people walk all over us and to be powerless victims. Because Jesus died on a cross, but Jesus did not die as a victim. Jesus says in in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus stood before evil people strong and sure, and he's not asking us to be any different. And why did Jesus lay down his life? Because he trusted his father when his father said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. After death, resurrection will come. The greatest power of all, the power of new life and indestructible life will come out of death and laying down your life. And every once in a while, we get a glimpse of this kind of power in the world today when we follow Jesus' teaching or when we look at someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or a Desmond Tutu or a Mother Teresa. Someone who returns evil for good and violence for nonviolence and forgiveness and love. And it has a powerful impact for good on the lives of many, right? It's the only way the kingdom ultimately comes and triumphs. More war, more tit-for-tat retaliation, more violence isn't going to fix our world. We've proved that over thousands of years. So we can't get around these verses today. We can't love Jesus and, and love the Sermon on the Mount, but conveniently skip over this part. Because right here, Jesus is going after the part of our heart which has to change, which he has to transform, and we need his help to do it. And if we're going to become people of his kingdom, salt and light people, cross and resurrection people. But here's what I fear. I fear that that many of us want half the cross, not the whole cross. We want the half where Jesus is this way and where he dies for us and for our benefit. But we don't want the part where he calls us to become like this too. And to live this way as well for the sake of others and for the sake of God's glory. Well, Jesus isn't offering us just half of the cross. That's not an option. He's, he's given us. He, he's told us clearly that if we don't take up our crosses too, we can't be his disciples. If we don't develop the kind of heart that the cross represents, if we don't accurately reflect, well, if we don't develop that kind of heart, we won't accurately reflect Jesus or his kingdom. 
with half the cross, we'll wind up with half of the resurrection. So let me ask you, what will it take for us to live this way and to develop this kind of heart? Answer, we're going to have to trust Jesus' Father the way Jesus did. If someone insults us and criticizes and spreads bad words about us, we're going to have to trust that God loves us and that that's all that really matters. And if our reputation is damaged, we'll have to trust that God can rebuild it. And if someone shorts us out of money that they owe us, we'll have to trust that God can provide for what we need. In fact, Jesus gets to that later in the sermon. (laughs) After he says, if someone sues you and takes your shirt and uh, give them your cloak as well, he says a little later, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. The pagans run after these things, and your father knows that you need them. If he clothes the lily of the field, won't he so much more clothe you, you of little faith? We're going to have to trust this. And Jesus, in his earthly life, was so effective and so selfless and so able to lay down his life because he trusted his father like this, didn't he? And look how Jesus changed the world as a result. But the job's not done, and so our job is not only to tell people about Jesus, but to show them, to live, to model the way that Jesus called us to live. Let's pray. We need it. I need it. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you for what we get to remind ourselves of during this season of Advent. That is that you came putting aside your shirt, your cloak, becoming a baby born into straw and a manger, surrounded by um, despised, low-status shepherds. And we thank you for the season where you want to make the rough places plain in our hearts. You want to straighten out the crooked places. You want to raise up the valleys and lower the mountains so that you can come in us and through us into this world. Jesus, we need you to give us a new heart to live this way. We confess our heart does not want to do this. At least the part of our heart which is from our old self, the old fleshly part. But we also confess that you have given us, you are giving us a new heart. And that new heart will rise to this occasion and love people well beyond what we imagined or thought. Please change our hearts. Amen.